Hey, show of hands, how many of you were here last week or listened online to Rebecca Morgan preach the word? How awesome was that? You know, in case you missed it, she kicked us off on a sermon series in the season of Lent. Lent is the season that leads up to Easter, and it's our hope and our longing that we would uh, encounter and experience and not just know about Jesus, but to experience Jesus in a new way, a fresh way, a profound way. And so in this season, there's many of you that are signed up for life groups. You're meeting in homes, in workplaces, in restaurants, and you're opening up God's Word. You're opening up your hearts. You're opening up your lives to one another. And in this second week of this sermon series, we've got an opportunity to allow God to show us something new. We are coming to Scripture, perhaps encountering a passage that many of you are familiar with, but it's my hope and my prayer that the Holy Spirit would either remind us of something we've forgotten or to show us something new today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open it up to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. If you're in the front row of any section, there's a little red book behind your leg or in front of you, there's a red pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that is now yours. We'd rather it be in your life. It's our gift to you. Uh, rather than sitting in the pews all week, we can replace it as quickly as you take it. And in a moment, I'm going to read this section. This is John 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, it's on page 863 in your Red Pew Bible. I'm going to read out of the New Revised Standard Version if you're online or checking your mobile devices. But before I read this, let me say right from the get-go that this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. This is the first moment where he reveals to the world what he's all about. If you think about launching a company and you've got your website in your first presentation, you want to tell people and the world from the get-go what you're all about, right? Uh, If you're about to launch a film, when you cut the trailer, you want the trailer when it drops on the internet to represent and reflect the film, right? Uh, when you're about to release an album, your first single that you, you, know, you, you put out there on all the services, you want that to reflect the bigger picture and the reality of that thing. So here we've got Jesus. He shows up, and it's his first miracle. And you've got to know from the get-go, you're not going to hear about anybody coming to life. You're not going to hear about somebody who is blind that can now see. You're not going to hear about somebody who couldn't speak that now speaks. You're not going to see somebody that was crippled that can now walk. You're not going to see anything like that. What you're going to see is you're going to see a party gone wrong. And Jesus says, I want the world to know right from the get-go what I'm all about. This is John 2, verses 1 through 11. After I read it, we say, thanks be to God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now, draw some out 
and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom over and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. All right. First miracle. Jesus does not give sight to the blind. He doesn't resurrect somebody from the dead. He keeps the party going. And you've got to know. He wants the world to know this is what he's all about. Yes, he will endure. Yes, he will suffer. Yes, there's moments of contemplation. But right from the get-go, Jesus says that I'm going to bring a joy unlike anything else. I'm going to do what no human can do. I'm actually going to create an experience that far transcends what any person can experience because I am the Lord of hosts. I am the true master of ceremonies. I am the giver of festival joy. But there's two points I want to make. And those two points uh, can be summed up in two phrases. The first is this, now. And then second, not yet. So can somebody say now? We've got a question as to what happened for them now. And then we're going to have a question of what was not yet going to happen for them. And then we're going to move to what is true for us now and what is not yet. So let's take a look at them, first century. You've got to know here in verse 1 on the third day. Now, in uh, modern American uh, Western world, we count our days often beginning with Monday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday would be the third day. But in that culture in the first century, the third day was Tuesday because they started on Sunday. Why have a wedding on a Tuesday? I mean, Fridays, yes, Saturdays, yes, Sundays, maybe, but Tuesday? Well, you've got to understand that weddings always happened on the third day in Jewish culture. Why? Well, did you know that in the first account of how God created all things in Genesis 1, there is this uh, description of God speaking all things into existence, and at the end of each of those periods of time, which uh, in the Hebrew language can either be a day or it can mean a length of time, but after the first day and the second day uh, and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day, and the, at the end of all that, God says that what He creates is good. But on the third day, something uniquely happens. God says it is good twice. Doesn't say that on the first day. Doesn't say that on the second day, the fourth, the fifth. Doesn't, doesn't do that. On the third day, there's a double blessing. And so in Jewish culture, they got married on the third day because they needed a double blessing. Like married couples, we need that, don't we? Like more than double, right? So there's this, this interesting idea that the wedding happened on a third day to receive this double blessing from God. But a wedding was so much more of a party back then than it is today. In fact, it lasted for seven whole days. 
how massive is this rager? And that, and that just, was, just was what they did. So here we've got on the first of seven days, they've run out of wine. These are likely teenagers getting married. You know, the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, they have this responsibility with their family to provide food and drink and fun and festivity and joy for everyone that's invited. And now they've got seven days left of this, and they've run out of one of the key ingredients. What's going on here? I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's absolutely embarrassing. Uh, how many of you, whether it's a wedding that you've been to, maybe you were a, a bridesmaid or a groomsman, or uh, maybe it was your own wedding or one you attended where something, something went wrong? I mean, one of the worst days ever uh, for something to go wrong, and here's something's gone wrong. And so what happens? So we'll get to how Jesus interacts with his mom in a moment. But first, what Jesus does is he says, okay, I want you to see right over there. Take a look. Uh, those, verse 6, now stand there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. We'll come back to that in a moment. The number six and the fact that they're water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. But let's, let's focus on how big they are. 20 to 30 gallons, it says in verse 6. And there's six of these things, averaging 20 to 30 gallons. So let's, let's split the difference and say, on average, each is about 25 gallons large. And you've got six of them. And when Jesus says, I want you to fill, not halfway full, not three-quarters full, not seven-eighths full, I want you to fill to the brim with water. So you've got six of these things on average of 25 gallons, so that equates to 150 gallons of water. Just, just imagine 150 gallons of water, massive amount of water. And then what happens? Jesus, verse 7, says to them, fill the jars with water, and they fill up to the brim. He says to them, now, somebody say now, draw some out and take it to the chief steward. The chief steward is like the master of ceremonies. This is the hype man. This is the person you hire to keep the party going. It's seven days long. I mean, it's like the first century DJ. Like they need somebody to keep this going. And so the servants go to the chief steward, and what does the chief steward say? The master of ceremonies, what does he say? Take a look. Verse 9, when the steward tasted the water that had now become wine, your New Revised Standard Version does not use the word now, but in the Greek it's there. This water that now had become wine. He didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who drew it, they knew. The steward called the bridegroom, the young guy about to get married. He doesn't go to Jesus. He doesn't know the source of this wine, but he goes to the bridegroom, the, the young man, he says to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let me hear you say now. Now, whenever I think of good wine, I think of my aunt's wine. Now, I don't brag on my aunt very much, uh, but my aunt is one of the top female winemakers in the world. 
She was one of the first female winemakers in California. She's been making wine for 46 years. She's only one of three women to have won the James Beard Award and to be inducted into the Winemaking Hall of Fame. Absolutely remarkable, uh, the level of wine that she creates. If you go to her website right now, the most expensive bottle of wine, not a Magnum, but just a bottle of wine, would be $150. So let's take one of those good wines. And imagine if you uh, price out the cost of that to equate to 150 gallons. It would cost $115,000. Just like that. This master of ceremonies goes to this young man and says, wow, we can keep the party going. What happened now for them? In that moment, Jesus did something. In that moment, he is communicating, not everybody knew this, but he was communicating that he was the true master of ceremonies. In that moment, he was communicating, I come to bring joy. In that moment, he he does it not through an abracadabra, poof, 150 gallons of wine. For them, what he did now was he entered into a relationship, and he says, I want you to bring something to this situation. Would you bring water? And let me take your something, and I'm going to turn it into everything that's needed. So in that moment, he does something for them now that was absolutely remarkable. Their embarrassment is now gone. Their sorrow has been turned to joy. That was for them now. But here's what's absolutely remarkable, what it says next. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs. It doesn't say miracles. It was a miracle, but it says signs. What's a sign? A sign is something that signifies a greater reality. A sign on the 10 freeway that says Grand Canyon, 332 miles ahead, points to the greater reality of the Grand Canyon and yet is not the Grand Canyon. It's something real, but it's not yet the fullness of what's to come. So Jesus, for them, first century, what he does now is something so significant, but he says, this thing that I've done is simply a sign for what's yet to come. Well, what's yet to come? It's right here. Open those Bibles back up. Take a look. Let's go to it. Jesus' interaction with his mom, verse 4. Jesus says, we're a woman. What concern is that to you and to me? Uh, How many of you, show of hands, feel like, wait a second, is Jesus being disrespectful to his mom? How many of you uh, wonder that question? Yeah, especially when I read it with the tone that I read it. Woman? You know? You've got to know that Jesus, uh, fully human, fully God, never sinned, lived a perfect life, uh, never had disrespect for anyone, treated people with 
utmost respect, actually more perfectly than any human has ever done. And you've got to understand that in the first century, how he is addressing his mom is not disrespectful, but he is disengaged. In fact, this phrase, what is it to you and to me, is a popular Semitic phrase from the first century that expresses disengagement. Uh, how many of you have ever tried to have a conversation with somebody and you could tell that they were not engaged with you? <laughs> and it seems like every year with more and more apps and the smartphones, we get more and more of that. Uh, when our mind and our heart is somewhere else, we are completely disengaged with what's in front of us. My hope and my prayer, I literally, I wake up every day and I pray, God, would you help my mind and my heart to be in the same room as my feet? Because so often I'm somewhere else and I'm missing my kids, I'm missing my wife, I'm missing what's right before me. And here we've got Jesus in this moment who is disengaged in the middle of a party. How many of you have ever been at a party and your mind's been elsewhere? Yes, okay, we, we can relate to this. Uh, I don't know what you were thinking about, but this is what Jesus was thinking about. Take a look. Verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Say what? Jesus' mom says they're out of wine. He says, what has that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is, what is that about? And then the mom is like, whatever he says, do it. How baller is that? Like, that's so amazing. What's going on? Well, you've got to understand that this phrase, uh, my hour, is found here in John 2 and in John 4 and in John 5 and in John 7 and in John 8 and in John 12 and in John 13 and in John 17. And the hour for Jesus, if you read each of those, you'll do it before the end of the day, right? 4 and 5 and 7 and 8 and 12 and 13 and 17. You can remember those, right? Or write them down. 4, 5, 7, 8, 12, 13, and 17. I'm telling you, it's worth reading. That hour that is referring to refers to many things that have not yet happened during that wedding. The now of that miracle was a smaller picture than the not yet that was to come for those people in the first century. And the now of what they experienced wasn't just a reality. It was a sign to all of what was yet to come. And when you read those verses later on today, those chapters, you're going to see that one of the things that my hour refers to is Jesus' death on the cross. And what's absolutely remarkable, when he goes to the cross, before he does that, he sits at a table with his disciples. And for the first time in human history, he takes a cup of wine, which is from the Passover meal, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He's connecting that wine as a symbol, as a sign that points to the shedding of his blood that wipes away, that cleanses all sin. That was yet to happen. So how was the wine in that moment, in that miracle, assigned to that? Take a look. Open those Bibles back up. Verse 6, now standing there were six stone water jars, not just any water jars. These were water jars for the Jewish 
rites of purification. You see, in that moment, those teenagers, not because they were teenagers, not because it was their wedding day, but because they were human, experienced what all humans experience, guilt, shame, not being enough, not measuring enough, not being whole. In fact, in Romans 3, it says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You were with us in the Exodus series. One of the things we discovered is that we have a God that is holy, that is just, that is perfect, that is loving, that is beautiful, and we are not, we can't be in God's presence. And so there was this sacrificial system and cleansing system that people had to go through just to be in God's presence. And even then, it wasn't them, it was the high priest once a year. And so the Jewish rites of purification was this very complicated process where people cleansed themselves before they went to the temple to worship, uh, before they prayed, before they did things, and before they consummated the marriage. This wasn't just a hygiene thing. This was to be spiritually pure as that husband and wife came together as one. So Jesus, what does he do? He says, I want you to fill up water in those things that will cleanse these people. And perhaps some people are like, oh, I know what he's doing. And all of a sudden, it turns into wine. I guarantee you there were some people who were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How are they going to be spiritually clean now that it's wine? Remember, it was a sign that spoke to the not yet reality of partly the hour in which Jesus went to the cross when Scripture says that He pours out His blood to do away with the sacrificial system to cleanse you once and for all with His blood. And the wine that we drink is simply a sign, is simply a symbol to that. Okay? That was not yet for them, but it's more. You see, the hour that Jesus referred to that was not yet for them in the first century was also his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It talks about that. You'll read it in John 4 and 5 and 7 and 8 and 12 and 13 and 17. You'll read it later. And it also talks about when Jesus will return again, he'll defeat God's enemy, completely establish his reign and his rule here on earth as it is in heaven. He's going to wipe away all the tears from all of our eyes, and there's going to be a wedding. So in that moment in the first century, there was a little bit of now and a whole bunch of not yet. All right? And a little bit of now was a sign, a symbol of all that was yet to come. And for them, it was massive to know that Jesus right there in that moment did something that caused those believers in the first century, as it says here, verse 10, they believed. So what happened now for them was just a little picture of all that was yet to come, right? What's now for us today? Jesus has gone to the cross. He has done away with our need to make ourselves whole. He's done away with our need to make a name for ourselves. Uh, He's done away with our need to 
uh, justify ourselves before others, before God. He's actually, through his death and his burial and his resurrection, defeated death, defeated sin for us, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's poured out the Holy Spirit to all of us now. So that was not yet for them. It's now for us today. 1 Corinthians says this, that we are like, ready for this? We're like broken vessels. Jesus doesn't fill us up halfway, three-quarters way, seven-eighths full. He fills us up completely with the Holy Spirit now. Now. So for us today, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, you know what that means? Your shame is gone. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is gone. You receive this truth that you are adopted into God's family. You've been cast out of darkness into his marvelous light. You receive in full the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. God looks at you and says, you are pure. You are holy. You are blameless. You are my precious possession now. And so back then, it was a little now and a whole bunch of not yet for us today we got a whole lot of now that we can experience now, the kingdom of God here now, to be ambassadors for Christ now, to live from a place of victory in freedom and authority now, filled up by the Holy Spirit, sanctified by his blood. Don't have to go through all these things. And yet there's one little not yet that's left for us today. You see, I love how in Scripture, and you'll read it, right? John 4 and 5 and 7 and 8 and 12 and 13 and 17. Uh, one of the things that Jesus says that my hour has not yet come, where all the dead in the graves will be resurrected to life at the sound of my voice. That for us today in 2019 is a not yet reality. I want to read it to you. Would you go to Revelation? Which, side note, the same author of the Gospel according to John is the same author as the book of Revelation. Those two books begin and end with a wedding. And as we go to Revelation, I'm going to begin in verse 19. Verse 9, chapter 19, thank you, thank you. Revelations 19, verse 9. 1,006. 1,006. Thank you, brother. In verse 9, chapter 19 of Revelation, not revelations like I used to say as a kid. It's one revelation. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, as John says, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's about Jesus. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now let's pause right there. Jesus, hang with me here is at a first century wedding, okay? He is lost in thought. 
He's lost in thought about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his marriage. As a single Jewish man, he does what so many of my single friends and what I did when I was single did at weddings. I got thought and caught in the moment of, will I ever get married? And Jesus does get married. And I've got a word for everyone here who's single. You have a culture that tells you that you will be complete when you find your mate here on earth. That's BS. (laughs) Fill in those words. Ron's going to kill me afterwards. Lord help us all. And I'm being provocative to make a point. That is a lie from the devil that says that you will be complete and you will be fulfilled when you find a human relationship that will complete you. I mean, you know what movie messed us up? Jerry Maguire. It messed us up. The whole you complete me thing is a lie. You know what Scripture says? You are complete in Christ. You are whole in Christ. You are enough in Christ. And so we live in a culture right now. It's true today. It was true back then that you're only something unless you get married. And then it's if you have kids and then if they graduate. That's BS. I'm going to say it again. You need to hear the intensity of how much a lie that is. Because Jesus says, I'm holding out for you. You can't even begin to describe the union that we're about to experience. And the closest thing we can use to describe that is a human marriage. Because one day, Jesus says that I am going to get married to my church. Young and old and single and married, we're going to experience this intimacy and this wholeness and this togetherness and this completeness and this joy that is infinitely greater than any rager on earth, any St. Patrick's Day party can ever be. Flip the page, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He, this is God, will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. So in that moment, first century, Jesus is in a wedding. And an embarrassing reality pops up. They've run out of wine. And he does something for them, which was now for them, that was a sign of all that was yet to come. 
He was thinking about all that he had to go through to make us whole, to cleanse us, to cover over our shame, to cover over our guilt, to give us a true identity, a true purpose, a true future. He was thinking about all the things that he would have to do to give us the Holy Spirit so that we would be empowered to be his hands and his feet so that we would embody Christ to a broken and a hurting world. He was thinking at that wedding, all the things that he would go through to empower you to be like a broken vessel filled up by the Spirit to walk with authority and might and humility and love. And he was thinking about all your tears and all of your loss and the cancer and the sorrow and the disgrace and the betrayal and all the things you've experienced in all your life. And he knew at that time in the wedding what was not yet to come would be the one day where he would say, I have the last word. And I am with you now. Here we are, 2019. He says, I am with you now. I am present with you now. My spirit is filling you now. And I'm not yet done with you. And what's so remarkable, and I'm with this, not only were these cisterns, these jars used for uh, the purification to cleanse themselves, there was how many? There was six of them. Before, Jesus, before God, well, Jesus, yeah, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and they were all together at creation. Uh, before God rested on the seventh day, how many days did it take for God to create everything in existence? Now, six, there's kind of a, yeah. So the Hebrew word for, uh, I think it's adad, uh, where we get the word day, can be translated either as a 24-hour period or it can be a significant length of time. One of the questions I've got for Jesus was, how long did it take to create everything? could be six 24-hour periods. It could be 3.4 billion years. Either way, it doesn't matter. God created everything from nothing. And so the number six in Scripture represents all that God has created. In Amos 9 and Joel 3, it says that a sign and a symbol that will represent the truth that God will be present everywhere in all of creation when Jesus returns is that wine will flow from the mountaintops. What a weird thing. So there's this symbol from the Old Testament that says that whenever wine flows from the mountaintops, you're going to know that God is present everywhere. There is a not-yet reality from our perspective today that is this. One day when Jesus returns, His presence will be everywhere. You see, God is present everywhere, but we don't experience His presence everywhere. One day that will happen. And the sign and the symbol for that back in that little wedding was that there was six cisterns filled up to the brim with wine that represented the presence of God, that all of creation would be filled with the presence of God. That's a not yet reality, but here's what's true now. I'm going to come back to it. You are filled up. All of creation isn't filled up with the presence of God, but you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You can experience the very presentness and the nowness and the immediacy of God. Jesus interrupted a wedding in the here and now, and people believed. 
Uh, he interrupted the here and now, and his mom said, do whatever he says. Jesus will interrupt your marriages, your friendships, your workplaces, uh, your situations, your bank account, whatever's going on in your life, so that you would experience the here and now of him, that you would believe, and that you would do everything that he says. There is so much here. Rebecca, I love the fact we're doing this sermon series, right? It was your idea. It was totally your idea. There's so much in Scripture. So my prayer is that right now, you would know that you have a God who says, I want to be with you now. I want to fill you up now. I want to walk with you now. I want to love through you now to a broken and hurting world. I want to give you courage now and hope now and peace now and joy now. But you've got to receive that. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this moment that here now in this place, those online, those in person, those hearing this after the fact, know that Jesus, you are asking us to see you as our beloved. To see you as so much more than just a teacher, but as a savior. To see you as a king, high and lifted up. To see you as our groom of which you will make us whole. And Jesus, in the quietness of this moment, would every single one of us turn to you perhaps for the thousandth time or some for the first time and say, Jesus, would you fill me up with your love? Jesus, would you fill me up with your presence? Jesus, would you fill me up with your spirit? Jesus, would you fill me up with your joy? Jesus, would you fill me up with your peace? Jesus, would you fill me up with your purposes for my life? Jesus, I thank you that you always have the last word. And yet there's so much for us now that we turn to you again and again. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray and we say it together.